Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning and thank you for this place. We ask, Lord, that you would be and always be present here. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to cut deeply into our hearts, to remove that which is not of you, and to honor you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we, we were in the middle of a gospel reading, which we picked up on this week, which you might have noticed. Jesus is speaking to his 12, and he goes from calling them the 12 disciples last week to the 12 apostles, and he talks about persecution. He talks about the fact that to be a Christian, and particularly to be one who speaks as they are to speak on behalf of Jesus himself, is to be in conflict and confrontation with the world. This week continues on that theme. And so if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have the insert that uh, came with the bulletin, open with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, and we're going to dig right in as we continue along in this gospel passage. Verse 34, Jesus is speaking and says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This might seem a bit confusing to you, because so often we talk about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. So often we talk about Jesus as the one who brings peace to this earth. It's actually a mistranslation in the Christmas carol, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men. If you go back and look at that text, it is peace to earth, goodwill to those on whom the Lord's favor rests. And so we see that brought out in Jesus' word today. Because while Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, brings peace to we Christians who have been justified by Jesus' blood. He brings that peace between us and God the Father. That's true. But here, it tells us that he brings a sword. He brings a sword. A sword which pierces. A sword which brings division. A sword which cuts. This is one of my uh, artifacts from the American Civil War. It's an original sword used by an artilleryman. And they were armed with this saber, which is particularly curved, you might notice, because it was curved in order to block the oncoming cavalry that would be attacking the artillery pieces. And so it was mostly a defensive weapon and has the greatest uh, diameter there of protection. Jesus calls us to the sword, but not to wield the sword, but to be cut by the sword, the sword which he brings. Whenever God's righteousness and justice goes forth, there is cutting. Whenever God's justice and righteous rule goes forth, 
there's resistance. And as emissaries of our Lord, we're involved in that cutting and resistance, both in a defensive way and in a way that Christ cuts things away from us. You know, war can be good news. War can be good news. Ask anyone that is under a dictator or a tyrant. Ask anyone who suffers at the hands of a slave master. When the freeing army comes and brings liberty, that war is good news. You know, one of the things that we talk about as Americans and are rightly proud of is our actions during World War II, where we liberated millions from concentration camps. We use force to defend ourselves and our families out of love for them. We use force to free others out of concern for their well-being. And it is in that way that our Heavenly Father wages war on this world. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, we're told that war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. We as the church too often don't realize that we're in the middle of a battlefield. But it's not a battlefield of flesh and blood. As Ephesians 6.12 tells us, we do not wrestle or fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. When we see evil in the world, we have to realize that that evil is not just its own making, that there's an evil that stands behind it in the kingdom of darkness. We as the church continue to be in that middle of that battlefield and God has fought for us, thank heavens, because if it were up to us, we would not have a chance. As Lutheran scholar and author Lenski writes, if Christ had not come, the earth would have gone on undisturbed in its sin and its guilt until its day of doom. What he's saying there is, yeah, it might seem peaceful for Christ to have never come, for God to have never waged war, for the conflict to never have been had, but Christ loved us enough to intervene, to invade, to send his own son, who he knew would be a casualty of that war. So to be a follower of Jesus Christ is participate in that war for goodness, truth, reality, and the beautiful. Jesus brings that sword, and that sword cuts. Look with me at verses 35 and 36. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why does Jesus come with division. The Greek word used here is actually the word dixase, which means to set apart, divide, cleave, or sunder. It's the same word used in this verse that's used in Leviticus chapter 1 to talk about how the sacrifices are cut apart. 
Why does Jesus come and bring the sword? And look where Jesus goes immediately. To those things which are most natural affections, relationships. Jesus goes to the most dear and near relationships. Man against father. Daughter against mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. One's own household. Jesus makes it clear that we must love him the most. More than any of those affectionate loves. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The word here for love is not the divine love, agape, but rather the earthly love, phileo. It's the same root from which we get the city name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so it's better translated affection or fondness. It is a brotherly love, a familial love. So Jesus says, unless you love me as a family member more than your family member, you're not worthy of me. He's not calling us to a special type of love, but to an affection, to a fondness. And think about it. What happens when we put God in place of father or mother or brother or son or daughter? And what happens when those people whom we love are not fellow believers in God? What happens? Division, disunity, dishonor, all sorts of confrontation. Why? Because those who are not properly ordered themselves in their affections and loves are going to be offended that you are not granting them their due and are giving it to God instead. It's something very serious that Jesus is saying here to his followers, to the 12, but also to us. Think about what it would be like in the lives of the 12 in the Middle East in his era, and even to this day, I might add. What happens when you take the honor given to the Father and instead give it to God, or the honor given to the emperor or the king and instead give it to God? It's a threat. It's a problem. And comes division and a confrontation. Who in the end are you going to choose? And it can be a matter of life and death. Now we see a lesser form of it today, don't we? Because all of a sudden we have conflicts when our own family members are not found in Christ. For example, in keeping the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, what happens on Father's Day? Church attendance plummets. Why? Because people are out spending time with their mom and dad, particularly their dad. Why is that? Well, what's the affection there? What's more important? God or your father? I know, that seems harsh. But what's more important? God or your father? And let's not pick on dear old dad. The same can be said of Mother's Day or of children. One of the biggest problems I see facing our culture is children running the roost. 
going to all sorts of activities and sports which are now being scheduled on Sunday morning. What happens? Do we choose God or do we support that child? Well, honestly, the best thing to do is to have the conversation with that child and say, hmm, you know, maybe we can not go to that practice or maybe we can choose another sport. You know, it's better to preemptively choose for this, but ultimately, what do we say to God when we go somewhere other than church on the Lord's day? It's not just a matter of breaking the commandment, it's an offense to our Father. It's difficult. Division's always difficult. I'm not saying that it's not, and I'm not belittling it. Don't hear that. The gospel divides because of our own sins and disoriented affections. The gospel cuts as a sword and creates division because we're not all in the kingdom together. And when there's divergent views of the kingdom, there's divergent relationships. But it also cuts through kingdoms, doesn't it? It's not just relationships that are affected by this. You've probably noticed that we're observing Independence Day today here at the church. It's a day that's set aside for the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which, among other things, is one of the first documents to make the radical claim that governments do not create or grant rights. God does. It's right there in the beginning of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Do you remember that from grade school? Maybe. Maybe you just have to dust off the rust. Do you see in there, it is God who gives us unalienable rights. And this was the first document to say that. That's why we celebrate Independence Day. But here too, Jesus brings the sword. Because we ought to be patriotic, yes, in the sense that it's our country, in the sense that we celebrate the fact that the United States is a place where we can worship freely. 1 Peter 2.17, St. Peter writes to the church, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. But as St. Paul writes to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we do not have the ease of saying, my country, right or wrong. The sword cuts. We're bound first to Jesus, who is the true, the real, the good, the beautiful. And fortunately, in our country, that free worship has been tolerated. Patriotism's a tricky thing. And people seem to have trouble balancing the two kingdoms on this account. Churches seem to fall into one rut or the other. There are Christians that see America as God's chosen people. This error can be traced back to the Puritans, actually. These Christians see no problem with singing the national anthem or America the Beautiful in church. And if you attend one of these churches, you might have trouble at that worship service telling whether you're praising God or your country. That's a trap. 
But on the other side, there's another trap. There are those Christians who see too much the divide. They do not think that identity should be celebrated at all. They do not think that any semblance of patriotism should enter into the church. They object to even having flags in the church or celebrating Independence Day. In this parish, we're grateful for the gifts of God on Independence Day. We choose hymns, you've probably noticed and will notice, that glorify God, not our country, but thank God for the things that he's given to our country. We have affection for our country because we see America as someone who preserves our liberties given by God. And we don't shun that affection for our community, our state, or our nation because we remember that it's God who's put us in such communities and called us to bring such communities to Christ. So we try to steer the middle way. We also remember that the sword cuts. And should our loyalties come into question, choosing the eternal kingdom over the authority of the temporal kingdom is our duty. And to stand against our government, should it ever conflict with the eternal kingdom, becomes our duty. We express this and we live it. But finally, the sword cuts. And it cuts down deep into our very nature. And perhaps most of the, the most divisive sundering of the sword, Jesus brings the sword to our very hearts. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever, verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Not worthy of Jesus. It's a strong word. It seems harsh. It cuts down to our hearts to forsake our family, our friends, yes, even our country and community for Jesus is to properly see our need for him. I want to say that again. You see, you might look at this passage and say that this has to do with your love for others, and it does, but ultimately it has to do with your love, with your affections, and therefore with our heart. Because if we can't love Jesus more than those, then we don't see our need for him as it actually is. It's a reflection of us it's a reflection of who we are. C.S. Lewis speaks of this need love. He says, need love cries out to God from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve or even suffer for God. Appreciative love says, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. But need love cries out to God out of our own poverty, the poverty of ourselves, the need that we have for him. And so what Jesus is saying here is that far more than a father or a mother, far more than a son or a daughter, far more of any relationship that you might have, you need God. You need Jesus. You need me, Jesus says. Don't think that I haven't come to bring the sword. We need Jesus the most. And we must come to Christ as a little one comes to a parent, and even more so. Not as an equal, 
but as a dependent, as one utterly dependent on Jesus Christ. Only then does verse 37 and 38 make sense. Verse 39, he continues, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If our attitude towards Jesus is, I'm not so bad, I'm all right, I'll just balance everything out, a little family here, a little bit of activities there, a little bit of honoring everybody, let's not be too radical or, or too energetic about our faith with God. I'll squish Jesus in here. And you know what? If he doesn't fit on that Sunday morning or in my devotional time during the week, that's okay. It's the last thing that matters. If that's our attitude towards Jesus, then we don't see him as we really need him. And Jesus rightly is a jealous God who makes war on everything that would keep you and me from him including our own nature, our own desires, our own identity. He cuts to the very core of our being, just like a surgeon cuts down to the deepest of our organs in order to remove the cancer or the thing that is making us unhealthy. Yes, to lose your life for Jesus' sake might be to be a martyr, as the 11 apostles were but it's much more to be a living sacrifice, as St. Paul tells us in Romans, because only losing your life in Jesus gives you real purpose. Relationships fade. Countries come and go, empires come and disappear. But the word of the Lord stands forever, that word being Jesus Christ. So to lose your life for him, to have yourself lost in him, is the true meaning of life and the ultimate purpose. George MacDonald, a Scottish minister who was mentor to Lewis Carroll, whom you might know was the author of Alice in Wonderland, and also a great influence on C.S. Lewis, Scottish Presbyterian minister writes this. He says, he, that is God, is our care. We are his. Our care is to do his will. His care is to give us all things. This is to deny ourselves. And he says this as a prayer. Speaking to his self, MacDonald says, Self, I do not have to consult you, but him whose idea is the soul of you, and of which as yet you are all unworthy. I have to do, not with you, but with the source of you, by whom it is at any moment that you exist. What's he saying there? We must deny ourselves for the sake of Jesus. We constantly have to watch because our self tries to take control, tries to pull us away from Jesus, tries to pull us away from God. You see, the enemy is not always out there. It's often in here. He continues on speaking to his soul. You may be my consciousness, but you are not my being. If you were, what a poor, miserable, dingy, weak wretch I should be. But my life is hid with Christ in God. Whence it came, and whither it's returning. You will return with me, certainly, but as an obedient servant, not as a master. So you see the sword cuts, relationships, loyalties, 
communities, down to ourself. Because that's how much the victory God is willing to submit to for our victory, for our restoration, for our ultimate peace in him. We have to submit ourselves constantly to Christ. So I ask you this morning, what are you placing between yourself and obedience to God? What does yourself hang on? Are you deluding yourself? The answer is yes. And I can say that with certainty because the answer for me is yes. How are you deluding yourself? Who would you be if you had to deny your family, your country, your very self? Have you gained your life by losing it yet? The promise Jesus gives is by losing ourselves and being hidden in him, we gain everything, including eternal peace. Jesus comes to bring peace to you, my friend, and to your neighbor, but he will not do so gently. He wields a sword out of love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have not left us in a peace that is equivalent to slavery. We give you thanks that you've delivered us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Draw us more and more to yourself. Give us clear perception. And most importantly, let us hide ourselves in you. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.